think the media is really seeing that there's some incredible stories out in the bush. In fact, they're looking for them now, whereas before, less so, you know, but I get calls quite often where I'll get a top rating TV and a producer will ring me and say, look, Georgie, I'm looking for, do you have any good suggestions? Like, I'm looking for this type of story or um, we really want to go out to Dubbo. Do you know anyone out in Dubbo? And G'day and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Emily Herbert, your host for this episode. Georgie Robertson is a red dirt country girl from way back. Growing up on a sheep station past Ivanhoe, it was a two and a half hour drive for the Robertson family to the nearest town. She studied via School of the Air and understands the heart of country Australia because she's lived it. She's also one of the go-to voices for public relations and media communications in the bush, with a client list that includes National Farmers Federation, AgriFutures and Buy From The Bush, to name a few. Running her business remotely from a property near Coolerman, 40 minutes outside Wagga, Georgie's clients are regularly featured in national publications and broadcast slots. But the road to a thriving business hasn't been linear or without its bumps. She founded her agency, The Regional PR Co, in January 2018, originally out of total necessity when she, her partner Scotty and her three daughters suddenly found themselves without a home and Georgie without full-time work. So six months before, I mean, so we, um, Scotty and um, two of my daughters were living on a polo property in Scone or near about an hour from Scone. Uh, I had one other, my eldest daughter was at boarding school um, and we got a phone call really quite quickly um, saying that the property had been sold. Uh, he was a helicopter pilot on the property and that the helicopter was also being sold and we would have to move because we were living on the property. The accommodation was part of his package. So we had to make a really quick decision about where we would like to go. Um, and for me, the obvious choice was Wagga. Mum and Dad lived in Wagga. had quite a lot of family there. Um, and so, yeah, we just decided that that would be really the best spot for me potentially Scotty was traveling so um so we moved to Wagga and we moved in with mum and dad which was um pretty massive because Maddie ended up leaving the boarding school that she was at so we um were in Wagga with mum dad the three girls and Scotty was still up um north for for quite a while so it was it was an interesting couple of months oh my gosh like did you ever imagine moving back home at that age and stage with your three girls? I don't think anyone would ever imagine moving back in with their parents as an adult with three children. Like you just don't really see that as, you know, if someone had kind of divined that and said, this is what's going to be happening in the next couple of years, I think I would have just (laughs) been quite depressed. But I mean, saying that it was a, I mean, it was amazing of mum and dad and they were incredibly generous. I think they thought that we would find a house quite quickly and, um, you know, there was quite a bit of pressure, I suppose, for me to find a job, full-time job, um, and that just, it just didn't happen. It took quite a while. My um, 
I, I still had clients from, from the work that I was doing up north, but I, I guess in my mind I was really looking for a permanent um, position, nine to five with, you know, super being part of the package and holiday pay and all of that sort of stuff. And literally I could not find a job for love or money because um, I think I've been working remotely for so many years. I wasn't ticking the right boxes and um, the recruitment agencies, I just, it was yeah it wasn't funny at the time but looking back on it I'm like I was a good I was a good get <laughs> what was wrong really yeah, I'm a catch. but I, I yeah I was a catch but clearly not in the eyes of um the Riverina recruitment agents so um yeah it was it was a pretty stressful time um and I I felt yeah it was it was just there was pressure from probably my parents as well because, you know, I was toying with the idea of going out on my own and then, you know, mum and dad were like, well, you really need to get a full-time permanent job and security and all of that kind of stuff. So um, eventually I bit the bullet. Um, a friend of mine mentioned that there was a co-working uh, space availability office space had come up in there and so I moved in there and... Um, and that was, that was a, in my mind, going to be a very short-term option. But, yeah, it ended up being, um, I ended up getting a couple of client, clients rather quickly and it just grew from there. So it sounds like it was a pretty organic beginning. Yeah, organic's a really nice way of putting it. Like, I think it was just, I don't know, I feel like the universe was really pushing me into a direction that I was kind of putting my hands up and saying, no, 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 and then eventually... I really, I just kind of fell into it. So it was, it was meant to be. So had you been working in PR prior to that? So when I was um, growing up, um, so when I was younger, after I left school, I ended up working in PR and um, working in a, quite a few Sydney agencies, bigger agencies, um, which is where I got my, um, where I got my kind of experience. And then I, um, we moved out of Sydney and I've always worked in PR and marketing in that and content creation. So I've always had that kind of background, but I guess I'd never kind of, I'd never kind of put my name to it and really, uh, you know, because I didn't have to, you know, like I was always supported. So it was a case of like, you know, I worked part time, I looked after the kids, but it wasn't a case of like suddenly you're the sole breadwinner and you need to be really, um, putting rubber to the road and you know, making a go of it. So it was, it was kind of a sink or swim situation then. And, you know, it was pretty horrendous because, you know, I'd gone through, obviously I'd gone through a divorce and um, that's never easy. And then, um, you know, having to, I guess, having to rebuild was, it was tough, but ultimately, you know, they, what they say, I don't know, there's some, lots of great quotes out there about like out of the hard times you grow. And that's definitely the case for me. Mm. It kind of, well, it totally propelled you forward because there was no other option. Was there? No. And I, I really did feel like that. I felt really hopeless and, you know, I was so stressed. Like I don't think I've ever felt the level of stress that I have when, you know, I mean, security and job security, financial security, that's, it's so important and, mm. you know, and your home. So not having any of that was, it was a, it was a big deal. And there were no jobs 
you weren't able to get another job. So in a way you created your own work, which I think says a lot about your own tenacity. What was that first year like? Look, I think the first year in any is always going to be quite tricky. I think it was tough because I didn't know, um, I didn't have a plan really. And that mm. that's never great. But I guess starting your own business, you don't necessarily know when you're going to have work. You don't know what clients are going to walk through the door. So you kind of take everything when it comes in and you end up really overloading yourself. Um, but I was also really fortunate that I got some great clients pretty much, um, you know, not straight up, but, you know, but six months in, I'd kind of established myself a little bit more and, I felt that, you know, like I had done quite a bit of um, pounding the pavement when I'd moved back to Wagga and, and knocking on doors and, and I spent a lot of time also probably creating a little bit of brand awareness, I guess, around the regional PR coast so that, and there wasn't anyone doing what I was doing in Wagga. So again, it was that opportunity, I guess, and right time for me where I grew quite quickly. The stress actually landed you in hospital, though, a couple of times, didn't it? Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so, you know, and you never want to go back there again, but the first time it happened, I actually thought I was having a heart attack and I went to the hospital and I was in emergency and I got shown through and had the ECG and, the, you know, I think I had an X-ray as well. But, you know, then I got shuffled out and sat down for another three hours. And finally, the doctor came out and said, you know, Georgie, can you come in? And um, he said to me, look, you're not having a heart attack. Good news. He said that you are incredibly stressed and you're having a panic attack, a quite severe panic attack. You know, is there anything going on in your life that would be causing this? And I kind of rattled off a few things. And he was like, um, and I said to him, I'm actually going to give up coffee and wine. And he said, uh, yeah, I don't think that's really going to help. <laughs> it's not going to cut it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you need to sort some other shit out first. Like, stick with the wine and the coffee, my friend. Anyway, it was quite, it was a pretty good wake up call. And um, he really, he did actually give me a bit of a pep talk and kind of said, you need to change some things about the lifestyle and the, the way that you're managing stress. So but again, I think, you know, a lot of it was in my head or I was creating the sort of worst case scenarios thinking, you know, pretty much sole provider for the kids, pretty much don't have anywhere to live. I'm house hunting. I'm trying to build a business. Um, my partner is nowhere to be seen because he was up looking for work in, up north. So, you know, it was a compounded mm. time in my life where it was mm. just, it all kind of piled on and, um, and it got... Yeah, it was a lot. So what sort of strategies did you end up implementing? I really went down a bit of a, a kind of alternative route, I guess you would say. So I didn't really give up coffee and wine, but I did start meditating and I really recognised that I just needed to stop catastrophizing, I guess, um, and also remove some of the stress, you know, like it, I was really in a fortunate position that, you know, I could count on mum and dad. They'd make dinner for us every night, which was so amazing. Um, and I guess I just kind of tried to, you know, instead of lying awake at night, if I woke up at three in the morning, I'd listen to a meditation CD or, you know, on my um, iPhone. Um, I also did some hypnosis, which was really helpful. And, um, and actually that probably, yeah, that got me through. Um, and also maybe just realise that it's, it's 
it's important to kind of take a bit of time out. But I, I've never felt like that since, but that kind of first year. Yeah. What sort of clients did you snag and, and how did you get them? Um, so the first client I got um, in Wagga was um, Destination Riverina Murray and I'd been asked to go to an event and present on what PR was and that was... Um, which was a bit nerve wracking actually, but I did, um, I did the um, presentation and afterwards um, the general manager came up to me and said, look, we're looking for someone in PR. We'd love um, to have a chat. So I went and met with um, Richie at the time and he was great. So that was my first client. And then AgriFutures approached me, um, um, Belle Allett there, and she, uh, they were putting together a, a, a huge ag tech, agri-food tech event called Evoke Ag, and they wanted me to do the PR for the event and the social media. So that was, that was a really um, massive client to get on board really early on, and um, it was amazing. It was just such a, I couldn't have asked for a two better kind of first clients. You had in the past worked in, in quite a lot of different sectors, so in entertainment and, and arts industries in PR. Why did you decide to niche in regional? Again, I think it was a timing and um, necessity. Um, uh, like I would not say that it was strategic at all at the time. I mean, I recognise that there wasn't anyone probably doing um, uh, offering those kind of services for smaller businesses and smaller organisations. And there's some amazing um, bigger PR firms in regional New South Wales, but they really cater to some of the, the much, much larger clients, like, you know, big agribusinesses or, you know, banks. And so I could see that there was a need for, um, for PR and publicity services for their smaller organisations, just purely in my own network in Walker, mm. you know. So also copywriting and social media and content creation like there's not a lot there wasn't at the time a lot focusing on that regional um you know everyone seemed to say well if we want to do this we have to go to sydney we have to go to the pr agency in sydney if we want to get um a publicist or if we want to get um you know our services or products promoted so yeah i guess at the time it just seemed like an obvious obvious gap in the market and what is it that you love about working regionally and working with your regional clients? I love the variety of the clients. I think that's, um, you know, it's a learning curve. I mean, there's no no way that, you know, I've got one client that's um, a four-year um, research project in with dung beetles. Mm. And, you know, I mean, it sounds completely unglamorous and very un-PR, but actually you know, they're an incredibly, it's an incredibly interesting um, project where you have, you know, so many different moving parts involved in the, in the um, research and the promotion of it and, you know, the economic benefits and the environmental benefits. And so for me, like, I think that's actually so interesting. I mean, I would never have known about the humble dung beetle before, <laughs> before I started working on it. But again, I mean, I think there's other, you know, all my other clients have been really um, interesting, like, you know, working on uh, the largest agri-food tech event in Australia was an incredible experience. Um, and again, it was a big learning curve because, you know, I'm not an ag tech expert. I'm not an agri-food expert. So I had to get up to speed on those topics. So that's part of why I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And I also love the relationships with journalists and media. And I love seeing those stories come to life. Like it's just, there is nothing like 
it, it is such a rush or making a connection with a, a small story in regional Australia and to see it on national um, news is just, it's a buzz. Mm. I don't think, though, people understand the hustle behind each of those headlines or the stories reaching you know, the big, the big news stations. If we could zoom out a little bit, I'd love to just delve into what your definition of PR is and the, the difference between PR and marketing. Yeah, I saw this great quote the other day um, and it was, marketing is sell, PR is compel. And I think that's really true. You know, PR is a combination of a whole different pieces. So, you know, publicity and media coverage is just one part of the PR pie. And, you know, so telling your story through multi-channels, having beautiful photos that you communicate what you're doing um, across all your touch points. I mean, it might be thoughtful packaging. It's consistent messaging. It's providing content to different outlets. It's, it's, It's so much. But essentially, it's telling your story in a consistent way and creating relationships. And do you feel like businesses need a publicist to be able to create that story and tell that story? Um, Well, I definitely think, I mean, of course, at times you would hire a publicist or a PR firm, but I also think you don't wait for the media to tell your story. You need to start telling your own story um, Mm. because it's slow burn often, you know, unless there's there's something particularly newsworthy about your organisation or what you're doing or maybe there's something happening, um, you know, in the current environment that really is relevant to your um, industry, then it's, it's a, it is, it's a slower campaign. It can take months and months for a story to land that you've been working on for a long time, but you can create the relationships, you can create the story and, um, and communicate with your audience. And that audience, you know, it might be journalists, it might be whoever it is that you're trying to talk to. But I think, you know, for most businesses I say to anyone that's looking at doing their own PR it's or get really clear on on your purpose and then know your point of difference um that's a really big one and then also be really clear on what your type of outcomes that you're looking for and then from that knowing what you want to communicate and do it across all your channels so you're building an online reputation that's and that is critical um then you might be ready to hire someone in PR because that's you're at that point so from a practical, pragmatic point um, of view, are you talking about building that trust through blogging and, your and say, a business's Instagram, Twitter? Is that what you mean by the different channels? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, more and more it's multi, it's, it's cross-platform. So, you know, you might create a blog post, for example, and talk about um, – you know, like you might have a dog bedding company, for example, and you might be talking about it's coming into summer and you might write a blog on the top five places to take your dog on holiday. And really, you're not really talking about your dog bed, but you're talking about you're a voice of authority on that mm. subject matter and um, and then you might repurpose it for, a, um, for all your um, social media, for example. You might pitch it to another... Um, you know, website who has a, there might be an accommodation website and then you can um, pitch to them and they might put the blog up or you might pitch it to a, um, 
a, a magazine like Barker's Bazaar, for example, who's only write about dogs and, you know, they might love a story on <laughs> <laughs> Barker's Bazaar. What? <laughs> I've had two stories in Barker's Bazaar. Do not mock Barker's Bazaar. <laughs> I would never dream of barking up that tree. Oh, no, exactly. (laughs) No pun intended. But the thing is, again, you're talking directly to an audience that's engaged and they're interested in your product. So, um, again, that's what when you say knowing what type type of outcomes that you're um, looking for. So, you know, if you are wanting to end up, for example, in a, in a niche publication, then you, um, you think about the kind of assets that you've got that you can offer them, think about the story ideas that you can offer, think about the audience um, or their readers and what they're going to be interested in. So it really is about thinking outside the box and being able to pivot quite quickly and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be newsworthy to find a compelling story angle. Not at all. And I think, I mean, newsworthy is great um, and definitely helps. I mean, if you're pitching stories and you've got some research or um, some really compelling facts about, um, you know, the fact that your business has grown 700% in the last 12 months, those kind of stories, that's Mm. newsworthy. Mm. But, again, if you're the dog bedding company or if you're a... um, I don't know, like, you, you know, you're a social enterprise working um, consistently and just doing your thing, you need to find those angles. You need to uncover them yourself. And there's always a gem in there. It's just a matter of, like, understanding, again, what your point of difference is and getting really clear on that. Mm. Telling your why is is really important. And I think, you know, why can, you know, people, when they talk about the why, it can sometimes come across as being more fluffy and woo-woo. But actually, if you don't know your why, how can you possibly be telling your story um, and getting your messaging consistent? It's, it's, it's basically impossible. Completely. So what are some of the common, like, let's talk about pitching and pitching to journalists, sending emails to editors. What are some of the common mistakes that, that businesses make or how can businesses be doing this better? I think one of the biggest mistakes is not knowing, not doing your research. Um, and so if you're doing your own pitching and, and to be clear, a lot of med, um, editors really love hearing from business owners. So don't think you need to be hiring a publicist to do this because absolutely not. Often, you know, they'll look at a PR pitch and go, you know, and kind of put mm-hmm. it to one side. But a, a business owner who really puts the time and the effort into that um, pitch and the subject line, they'll respond and, uh, you know, I mean, you say it time and time again, but a good pitch is, um, again, doing your research, looking and and that would mean looking at, you know, the stories that, previ- you know, they might have previously done. So you don't want to be pitching a story that they might have done three weeks ago, for example, because it's not going to be relevant. They've already done that. Forget about it. Um, mm. Understanding who their audience is, you know, following them on social media, seeing what their interests are, you know, if they are into alternative health, for example, then you know that, um, you know, if you're a, a, a dietitian, then you would look at some alternative um, health pictures, for example. It's just about really, you know, you can have one story and one kind of key message, but you can tweak it in different ways. And I think most journalists and editors will always say that if you send a, like, you know, bulk email out and it's not relevant, then you, you kind of get one bite of the cherry and they won't look at it again. So mm. 
It's about being targeted and thinking about and being thoughtful, really, because they've got very little time. They're getting inundated. You know, so many journalists would say get upwards of 300 emails a day and pictures. So yours has to have like a really succinct, compelling um, subject line and probably a paragraph and four or five bullet points about why your stories of interest, what you can offer them. You've got some beautiful Dropbox, a Dropbox link to some beautiful photos. Here's a fact sheet. Here's some more information if you would like to see it. Here's some B-roll if you're wanting to, if it's a TV um, station. So, yeah, just thinking about all the all the bits and pieces that are going to make for a great story for them because at the end of the day they want to tell a great story mm. and if you think you've got that great story just craft it really carefully and think about it and you can't go wrong mm. and it's um it's about making it easier for the journalist to run your story yeah and more and more i think that you know you see that more and more um branded content that's appearing in so many publications you know it's not it doesn't look like branded content but a lot of times you know you will have provided the editorial you might have hired a copywriter to write your top five destinations to take your dog on a summer holiday so it reads beautifully and then you've got a professional photographer to take some great photos to go with that story and more often than not the journalist will say we love that that's fantastic Mm. we'll absolutely run it Mm, awesome i don't think anyone would argue that the word for 2020 has definitely been unprecedented but a (laughs) word that i'm really digging at the moment which seems to be coming more to the fore is provenance And this seems to be quite sexy in media in particular. How can bush businesses be really riding the Providence gravy train and uh, selling their their locality as a story and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's a buzzword for 2020, but I think more and more people are really understanding. It's actually about owning your story. So, Provenance is about um, creating your own social license and looking at where, um, you know, what, what's resonating with people at the moment is, is knowing where, for example, if it's a food-related product, it might be lentils, you might want to know where those lentils come from, what, what are they sustainably packaged? If so, tell that story. You know, be, be, that's part of the, the narrative that you should be telling. Um, you know, some of the hurdles that you come up across the way, um, again, like it's that journey and detailing all those little bits and pieces across um, across your social media, whether it's NPR as well, obviously. It's it's really important. And Paddy to Plate, Australian made, I mean, they're very kind of topical. People are really resonating with that. And it's like, you know, as we know, buy from the bush. It, mm. Again, it's that sort of starting at your kitchen table and watching um, things unfold in front of you. It's um, because you're tapping into um, emotion. We'll be back in just a moment. But now a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family owned and Tasmanian based 
and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone, tested by every generation since 1870. Let's talk about Buy From The Bush because that has been such a massive campaign and you have been doing the PR behind that. How did you become involved and and what's that year been like for you? Buy From The Bush started in October 16 last year and that I think about three weeks afterwards, I was contacted by the comms team at the Deputy Premier's office because they were looking at doing a um, campaign and they were looking for, it was a regional campaign and they were looking for regional businesses to showcase. I said to them, look, I've heard of the social media page. Um, It's doing really well. It's gaining a lot of traction. Um, Why don't I give... um, the founder a call and have a chat with her and just see if she's got any suggestions as well and gave her a buzz and I think you know at that stage it was kind of growing you know 10,000 a week or something crazy in terms of social media followers and you know I could tell she was um, really really under the pump and we just had a really amazing chat about what she was trying to achieve you know obviously how crippling the drought was for so many businesses Um, and uh, by the end of the conversation I said look if there's anything I can do to help I'm really happy to because I'm, I really can see what you're trying to do and it's so important and the rest is history. Did you expect, though, to be working pro bono for a year on such an enormous campaign? <laughs> no, well, I don't think any of us realised <laughs> that it was going to be so enormous. Like, you know, it's that kind of thing where you say hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, I mean, for me, it was such a, I feel it was such an incredible privilege to be able to work on something like that. You know, it's almost like a once in a lifetime opportunity that comes along where all, everything aligns where you really, I'm, you know, I'm naturally drawn to those kind of regional stories, obviously, like that's my heart and soul. And then to be able to see the benefit that you could provide bush businesses. I mean, you it's just, um, you know, it was, it, it's so satisfying and the connections that I made with, you know, journalists, because for once, you know, they're ringing me saying, Oh, we'd really love to do an interview with Grace Brennan. We've heard about buy from the bush, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, so that was also really great. I forged some amazing relationships um, with the media because of Buy From The Bush and obviously, you know, some beautiful friendships with Grace and Millie. So it was it was a gift. And then at times I was like, oh, my God. And then Grace, I remember Grace sent an email or maybe she sent a text message to Millie and I about starting Stay In The Bush. And we were like, what? No. Is she serious? <laughs> anyway, we she launched that and that was amazing and um yeah it's been it's been incredibly incredibly busy at times particularly like in the lead up to christmas last year and then obviously with paypal coming on board and partnering um and the marketplace being launched so it's been really really fun busy learning curve and um yeah just wonderful really it's a one it's been a wonderful experience and i absolutely loved it why do you think 
the Metro media was so captivated and riveted by this, this story? Well, I think, I mean, of course, they could see the, the numbers, the social media following just rising exponentially. I mean, it was just going completely crazy. And so, you know, they can see that there was obviously an appetite for um, the story and what was happening. And it was newsworthy, right? So we were in the middle of the drought, the worst drought that we've had almost on record three years in. People were desperate, um, you know, and there was so much, so much chat about what people could do for um you know, bush businesses, what we could do for the drought. And really no one had come up with a, a, um, a practical solution. It was all about sort of government funding and, and charity raising money and all of that sort of stuff, which I think what Buy From the Bush offered was a very different narrative. It was a very different story. And so, again, it, it's that point of difference. It's about having... Um, it, it was about being incredibly newsworthy at the time. It was about... Grace putting the effort into curating a really beautiful social media feed and having gorgeous images and consistently telling the story of that bush business or those bush, bush businesses that were struggling and, and, and also the impact that was um, being made because, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, people were making, you know, a thousand percent more sales than they had in the whole you know year in one week or their social media following went up from you know individual businesses social media following went up from say you know 500 to 5,000 and so there was just so many great stories and I think people were looking for a good story looking for a good news story in the midst of drought and despair and you know um, farmers almost you know driven to the wall it was it was positive. Mm. Do you think that there has been a, a shift or have you noticed a shift in the appetite for country stories in the city and metro, metro publications? Yeah, definitely. And I think that is one of the beautiful benefits of Buy From The Bush um, is that, again, because the media could see how strong the desire was for from metro customers or consumers to be um, hearing about these stories and, and jumping on board, then it opened up like dialogue. It opened up these kind of um, a different narrative again. And so, you know, it, it became positive, even though there was just so much kind of despair and angst and, um, you know, some horrible stories of, you know, people not being able to almost going to the wall. So, yeah, it definitely, I mean, you know, three years ago, it's a lot harder to get a, a regional story up in national um, publications than it is now, I find. Mm, that's really exciting. And do you think that that traction will continue in that trajectory? I do. I think the connections have really been, um, I think the divide has been less. And I think that, you know, this, I think the media has really seen that there's some incredible stories out in the bush. In fact, they're looking for them now, whereas before, mm. less so, you know, but um I've had, you know, I, I get calls quite often where I'll get, a, you know, really, you know, like top rating TV and a producer will ring me and say, look, Georgie, I'm looking for, do you have any good suggestions? Like I'm looking for this type of story or um, we really want to go out to Dubbo. Do you know anyone out in Dubbo? And so for me, that's so, so satisfying. But again, like it's been, I think it's just been that kind of culmination of, you know, drought and then bushfire and then, a massive appreciation for like the stoicism and um, you know consistency of farmers and regional people just 
getting on and going forward and doing their thing. And, um, yeah, again, probably COVID has compounded that because everyone's had hardship, right? But farmers and regional communities have been battling that for a long, long time. Yeah, it's completely uh, brought or unveiled the perspective, certainly for those living uh, in the big smoke. Do you think that it's really important for businesses because it seems that the key thing for a lot of storytelling is vulnerability. Do you think that businesses need to show their face? Do they need to be the face of, of their business and do they need to be telling uh, or being vulnerable with the public? <laughs> I know it's such a funny question actually, because um, I think there's a fine line and I, I, Absolutely. Like from my perspective, I really believe that you need to inject yourself into your brand and your personality into your brand, um, and and to show the side, you know, the behind the scenes. I think people really do love to hear um, the the backstory or the bumps and the hurdles and the you know, I don't know, like just the little kind of day to day. But at the same time you don't want to be ugly crying on your Insta stories every day saying, I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a, like I say, there's a fine, fine line. And, um, and kind of, I think most people generally do that really well. Um, bigger organizations probably struggle to inject themselves into, into their, um, you know, into their communications, but more and more it's becoming, um, you know, increasingly the norm. Um, and I think, you know, like Insta stories is really great for that. You know, you can keep your Instagram grid really beautifully curated and, mm. um, and looking quite lovely, but the Insta story or the reels, you can, you can kind of inject a little bit of personality in there. And um, I remember I did a talk a couple of years ago. We did, it was a panel and I got up and um I, it was a sort of like my PR journey and talking about, you know, how to do PR and what the um, mechanics of it were. But I, I kind of started and I gave a little bit of backstory about how I moved to Wagga and, you know, I pounded the pavement looking for work and no one would employ me and it was just, you know, kind of a shitty time basically. And But I managed to kind of get back on my feet and now running a successful PR firm. Anyway, at the end of the panel, went for a sort of an hour or so, um, two women came up to me and they said, look, thank you so much. We absolutely loved hearing all your tips and advice on, um, on how to get PR and social media, but thank you so much for saying how you've struggled. She said, and this one woman said to me, we just, I've just really struggled to find work and it's so lovely to hear and see someone who's had a tough time come through and do well and she said it really kind of gave me some resolve around like I can do this as well and I think that's that's the beauty of it you know it is just being able to give a little snippet mm. along with um you know staying on brand staying on message yeah beautiful it is it is a, a really fine line but uh, you know you see businesses doing it so successfully and business owners and I think perhaps that is a great place to start look at where other people are doing it really well and then look at how you can perhaps emulate that within your own social media strategy or within your own business plan. Do you think that that's probably a good place to start? Yeah, I do. I think you've got to also be comfortable with it. I mean, you don't want to come across as being inauthentic or, um, you know, and it can take a while to, to gain your confidence, I think, as well. Like, it's a scary place putting yourself out there mm. on social media and you've got to get to that point where you're either like, okay, 
no one's really judging me. They're actually really interested in my story. And I mean, you, you can see it anytime you might, you know, like if you put up a post about, you might do four product posts and then you might do one about yourself or, um, you know, like just a, a random like, hi, this is me. This is what I do. Just thought I'd pop in and say hi. You're bound to get like 300% more likes and comments than you are on the product that you've, you've had for the last four posts. Because mm, it humanises it. It does. And people want to have that connection. So it's, it's important that they feel that because then there's a trust for your product. Yes, absolutely. How do businesses go about finding their voice and finding that authenticity? Well, I mean, it, again, I think it takes a while. It, and I mean, I've personally struggled with it as well. You know, it's not easy putting yourself out there. I mean, even doing a podcast, right? I mean, it, it's not, it, it's kind of nerve wracking because you're talking about yourself. There's a little bit of business. There's a little bit of, you know, personal, like, mm. do I go too far? Shit, have I like, do I, <laughs> did I mention the divorce too many times? Whatever it is. <laughs> I'm actually much happier when you, do have a conversation that's very business focused and then you can kind of remain almost behind the scenes. But again, like what, if you listen to a podcast and you, you're listening to that person's story, you're going to feel way more connected to them after you've had that, um, you know, you had them stuck in your ear for an hour, for example, than mm. you would otherwise. So I don't know. Is that, is that answering the question? Yeah, well, I guess it's a muscle that you have to practice to find the voice. You flex, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, people do it really, really well. I mean, you look, at, um, you look at Jumbled Online, like Pip, you know, has no issue. She puts herself in so many of her social media posts. And I love that because mm-hmm. I'm like, God, that dress looks great on her. I'm definitely going to buy it. Whereas if it was on a sort of a model or, um, you know, like one of the catalogue shots, I'd feel less kind of interested and... Mm-hmm. Um, inspired but Mm. you know I don't know that's kind of one example but there's so many it's just it's just about I think getting confidence pushing yourself out there and and being a little bit tenacious and being a little bit like okay don't worry about what other people and at the end of the day it's it it is social media so you can archive the photo you can take it down it's not going to last and it's usually in um you know it's I mean the podcast is going to sit around for a little bit longer but there'll be 50 podcasts after yours that will um, inspire and resonate and people will be listening to. Yeah, completely. So looking at the practicality of your day as a PR or as a publicist working regionally, uh, what does it look like and and what's the hustle behind the scenes? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, You don't really want to know. It's exhausting because (laughs) I would say... (laughs) It's actually, it's actually slightly off-putting to any wannabe publicists out there or anyone in PR. But um, for me, I try and get up. I try and wake up at about 5. I usually wake up at about 4.30, get up, I'm at my desk at 5 o'clock, and then I'll try and smash out sort of two hours of work before the kids get up and out of bed um, and before all the emails start coming in. Um, I've usually got about four to seven clients at any time. So it's a bit of a juggle, like trying to, you know, trying to keep on top of like, you know, within one project, you might have four or five different storylines going and um, pictures out. So um, time time management is a really key skill, which I mean, clearly I'm not, I don't have a handle on because I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning. Um, (laughs) Either that or I've taken on too much work. (laughs) Crazy lady. (laughs) Oh, my crazy, right? Um, 
and I try not to send emails at 4.30 because I don't want people to think I'm, you know, <laughs> slumped away nuts. at my desk. <laughs> yeah, but virtually nuts. Um, occasionally one will slip out. Like accidentally this morning when I um, responded to an email um, with a girl asking me if actually um, Annabelle Hickson would be interested. Do you think I, she said, do you think Annabelle Hickson would be interested in doing a, a start a, an event in early March? I'm thinking, you know, Prosecco and fairing lights. And, and I couldn't remember, she said, can you give me Annabelle's email address? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And I couldn't remember Annabelle's email address. So I actually put it in the, um, like I looked it up and then accidentally left it in the, in the two the, um, <laughs> line. So I sent the email off to um, to this particular person and and Annabelle, and then realised and had to write back at four thirty in the morning and say, "Sorry, guys, um, super embarrassing, but I've accidentally included Annie in on this email as well." So, thank God it was go. negative. Oh my gosh, I was actually it was glowing. Just so you know, yeah, <laughs> of course, of course, it's Annie. Of course, I think, but also PR, right? Like, there's nothing could. Could anything be worse PR than writing something awful about someone else? No, not really. No. So, I mean, it was kind of funny, actually, because in the email I'd said, I think you should just, look, Annie's in the middle of doing her, like, incredible magazine and she's, you know, packaging and selling and trying to get it out there. So I wouldn't contact her until the new year if I were you. But here's her <laughs> phone number. <laughs> anyway, Annabelle very kindly wrote back and said, hi, guys. Um, sounds amazing. Love the idea of Prosecco and fairy lights and, you know, get in contact any time. So it was kind of meant to be, right? Oh, how gorgeous. A bit of a slight disaster. But anyway, clearly so, early mornings don't send emails. And so do you spend quite a lot of time trawling through the media and, and hitting the phones and things like that? Oh, my gosh. I'm on the phone all the time, like literally all the time. My partner scotty is like can you stop being on the phone i'm like it's my job like that's pretty much what i bread and butter so Mm -hmm. um yeah but in terms of media um i definitely read every morning i'll I'll kind of skim the um, headlines of major mastheads i've got subscriptions to all of them and then i'll also go through linkedin um instagram facebook like just kind of looking at what's going on um and then Yes, yeah, so putting that to one side and trying. I mean, it's such a, it, you know, like I'm in and out all day looking at mm. different stories and seeing what's happening and um, what's breaking news and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely part of, part of what I do. I'd hate to break it down and actually think about how many hours I spend on it. Yeah, don't look at your, um, that little app which tells you the percentage of your day that you spend on social media. It's mm-hmm. one of the I most depressing that. things. <laughs> I <deleted. laughs> I know. And I'm like screaming at the kids. I'm like, get off your phone. And they're like, but mom, you're always on. I'm like, that's work. It's for work. Do as I say, not as I do children. (laughs) I know. I don't even say that line because my dad used to say it to me all the time. It used to drive me insane. So I just basically, yeah. Anyway, I'm very hypocritical, but I do actually think it's for work. I justify it in my mind as being work. And it definitely is because, I mean, that is, I should have mentioned that before, um, if you are looking at doing your own social media, it's like following those journalists and, and um, commenting and engaging with them on their socials because that's another way of, I mean, I, I will quite often send a DM as a pitch and say, hey, you know, Charlotte, I'm looking at doing, I've got a story coming up about honeybees and bushfires. Is this something you'd be interested in? And she might go, yep, send me an email or no, we've done a honeybee story 
two days ago and not interested. Mm. So very, um, it's just a, that is a really great way of connecting with, um, with, with journos and another little touch point that is probably underrated. And same with LinkedIn, I would say definitely I, I would spend a lot of time kind of cultivating those relationships and, and spending those back, time um knowing what they're doing what they're up to i mean you know my friend odette who's in pr calls it nice stalking or i think she calls it romancing but it's actually probably more like stalking (laughs) (laughs) and for business owners who aren't hearing back and they're pitching they're doing the research what's your advice to them yeah it is again that's something that i would say is a fine line because i mean you know, you don't want to overstep the mark. And I mean, I had a story pitch in, I pitched a story four months ago to um, a magazine and I followed up probably twice. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think Em, you might've written the story anyway. And you did a great (laughs) job. But didn't get a run. (laughs) It was was so compelling that they just ignored it. No. (laughs) That is not true. As we know, it's a happy ending to this story. But four months later, the editor came back, or the features editor came back to me and said, Georgie, we love this story. We're actually running it next month. Can you send through um, a high-res version of the photos that you sent through? And so, you know, I probably followed her up twice. And then after that, I'd left it because I just think you can push too far. And I do know that most editors um, and journalists, like if they've got it, they might see a story and they'll be like, I really like that. I'm just going to file it in my interesting case studies folder and come back to it when I'm looking for a Queensland story about cattle or whatever it might be. And, you know, that'll happen quite a lot. So you just have to be, I think it's like anything, just be mindful about overstepping the mark um, and not overdo it. You don't want to be turning into like mega stalker and annoying them because then you'll just, um, then they'll just kind of block you. Yeah. You don't want to burn the bridge. So three years of the regional, um, the regional PR co, what is, what have been some of the biggest learnings? Um, I, there are so many learnings. Oh gosh. I don't even know where to start with that one. Um, I mean, time management is a big learning for me. I find that I struggle with taking on probably too much and then ending up having to kind of allocate the time that eats into my kind of own personal lifestyle and that mm. isn't great. I'm, I'm definitely a workaholic and, again, I'm not ideal when you've got kids and husbands and dogs and God knows what else, family. You know, you do actually have to allocate some time to them. Um, but I think, I don't know, like there's been so many learnings along the way. I think just kind of I probably wish that I'd listened to people earlier in my journey as a business owner. Um, you know, like really they've got some pretty good um, advice, but it it takes a while, I think, for anyone to get their groove on. And, you know, often you're operating, when you're in a, when you're in a small business and you're a startup, you do operate a little bit out of scarcity or fear. And so mm. you can't probably process that kind of advice. But I think getting a mentor is a really good um a good option for any small business owner, mm. probably something that I should have done earlier. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, lots of key learnings really. I think outsourcing is a big one. I mean, you can't be doing everything yourself. You can't wear all the hats as a business owner. 
you get to a point, I think, where you just eventually don't have much choice but to outsource some of the things, and and that's fine. Like I've learned that that's okay because, you know, you're better to spend your time on your business rather than in your business doing that stuff that you're actually not very good at. Like, I don't know, tech support or accounting. It's just you know, yeah, you don't have to be good at it. You just have mm. to understand it. Mm. The fact that you have built this really thriving business. Uh, living remotely out at Coolerman and also doing a lot of your or a fair chunk of your work remotely. I know that you hit the road to Sydney a lot, but what do you think that says about the capacity to work regionally and, and have a really satisfying career and a successful career? I think, um, you know, it can be, it's a double-edged sword. I think more so before COVID, um, because you know, in PR, so much of what you're doing is built on the back of relationships and having those kind of key interactions with um, journalists and producers and presenters. And you're not there, you know, you're not face to face. And there is something about being face to face which is incredibly valuable. And, um, you know, I, I, I much prefer, like, you know, I much prefer to be sitting in a studio with you chatting away than doing another Zoom or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you do probably have to work harder when you're based remotely. But again, like when COVID hit, that was a massive benefit, right? Because mm-hmm. I already knew how to kind of craft those relationships. And I'd already cemented so many probably, you know, just through that kind of, um, through those years of not being in Sydney. And of course, when I'm in Sydney, you know, I try and catch up or have a coffee, but it isn't, it's definitely easier now than it was say five years ago when social media wasn't such a thing. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of what I think is so divine about you, George, is you're so generous with championing particularly uh, rural women, whatever they're, whether they're business owners or uh, for me as a writer, you've always been one of my biggest champions. Why is that important to you? Um, I just think, I don't, I don't think I've ever really thought about it, to be honest. It's just something that I guess I love to see people fly and I, I get a real buzz out of, um, I don't know, like, you know, for example, this morning I had a text from a photographer who sent me a message and, and she just had an um, email from Grazie Her saying, uh, would you be interested in quoting on a photography um, job in a couple of months and she wrote to me and she said was this you and I I wrote back and I said well yeah I put your name forward I hope that's okay and she was like I'm so grateful but I just don't think I'm I'm gonna be good enough and I was like what are you talking about you're amazing of course she can do it and I think knowing when people back you and have your back it's such a it's I don't know brings about so many new possibilities for everyone and and you know, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. I've suffered it, you know, massively in over my the course of my career. And you sometimes you just need that person to give you a bit of a push or a word of encouragement and then you're flying. And I I don't think it's hard to do, right? Like who why wouldn't you do it? Mm, absolutely. Oh well I love that generosity. So thanks, George, and thank you for your time today. It's been awesome to chat. Thanks, so, so many juicy insights. We love having you on board for another series of Life on the Land, real conversations with regional and rural women.
Thank you so much for tuning in. One thing I love about this podcast is it gives me complete reign to be my nosy self and ask questions I genuinely want to know the answers to. I took so many practical takeaways from this conversation with Georgie and I hope all our business owners out there listening did as well. The importance of knowing our why, of owning our story, finding our voice and ensuring clear and consistent messaging right across our brands are the perfect reminders coming into a new year of growth and opportunity. Let us know what resonated with you the most and how you're going to use your newfound PR inspiration. We also love to see where you're listening in from. Send us a screenshot on Instagram of the app or a pic of where you are right now. You can help us to continue giving a voice to women and their stories in the bush by sharing this potty with your circle. It helps us get found on all the important podcast lists. Don't forget to check out our magazine in your local stockist or gift a subscription to a friend at grazyher.com.au. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson & Company. 